Today we will be digging into Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to that. If you need a Bible, there are some in the uh, maroon chairs underneath those. Feel free to grab one of those and open it up there. Um, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, or at least one of those lines in that passage, has been used throughout the years as almost like a band-aid to help those who are struggling with anxiety. We tell them things like, the Bible says don't be anxious about anything, and we slap it on, and we just try to walk away then. Like that word alone, that passage alone, those lines by themselves are supposed to give some level of comfort to those who are struggling. Don't be anxious and walk away. I will say that I believe this passage can give comfort, but it is not meant to be just slapped on the problem and walked away from It's a journey. It's like we talked about a couple weeks ago. A lot of this is a journey. So let's look at what this whole passage has to say. Not just these five, six words, however many they are, pulled out of context. Let's look at this whole passage and see what God has to say to us. And hopefully we can unpack what he is truly trying to say to us. So follow along as I read Philippians 4, starting at verse 4. Paul starts off and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is striking about this passage is the tone. It's not a shame on you passage that we can feel when we just say, don't be anxious about anything. That's not the purpose of this passage. It's not a shame. It's actually incredibly hopeful. It's filled with the hope of God. And so we want to look at that and what God is trying to say through the rest of the words in this passage of the hope that can be found in this. Before we get to Philippians 4, I want to just spend a little bit of time unpacking some other aspects of this. And first off, I just want to talk about what anxiety is. We'll just start with that. What is anxiety? We'll look at culturally and biblically what the world around us and what the Bible tells us anxiety is. So first up, Merriam-Webster went there for just a definition, right? It says that anxiety is characterized by extreme uneasiness of mind or brooding fear about some contingency. So it's this fear of the unknown, what may be going on. I don't know for sure, and I've got this extreme uneasiness or fear of the unknown. That's part of it, right, for some of you. They also had synonyms to go with it. And so some synonyms that they attached to the word anxiety were worried, troubled, upset, insecure, distressed, and edgy. Now I know for anyone dealing with any level of anxiety, just those words alone can be piercing. These synonyms can be piercing, right? You say, I'm not just worried. There's more to it. It's far deeper than just being upset. How is it helpful to tell me that I'm insecure? Well, remember, I'm not. This is Merriam-Webster's synonyms and, and their definition, These are just words that are supposed to give us some similar words to it, but even those alone just seem to be lacking. 
We had talked through as elders and just trying to figure out exactly how much needed to be stated on this topic. And one of our elders just nailed it right on. You know, I had plans of putting lyrics up of cultural songs and just trying to frame culturally what all this is talking about. And one of our elders said, you know what? I don't think the people really need to be explained what anxiety is. Right? They, they get it. They're not living with it themselves. They have someone they love or are close to that is dealing with it. So they know what that is. You don't need to spend a ton of time explaining to them what anxiety is. We live in a culture that is surrounded by anxiety. So what does the Bible say? Well, in reality, the word anxiety is not used a lot. Eight times in the English Standard Version, the entire English Standard Version of the Bible, which is the Bible that Matt and I preach from and the Bible that's in our church seats, eight times in all of Scripture, that word anxiety is used. And many times it's used to talk about something anxious that's going to happen or people's feelings. There are actually no Greek or Hebrew words that translate. That's something I like to do when I'm digging into a topic or a passage. I like to find key words and go and do word studies and try and understand what is this word in Greek and what is it, how is it defined biblically? There are no Greek and Hebrew words in the Bible that connect to the word anxiety. We need to think of it more as the idea of being distressed. Although the word is not used much, this idea of distress and anxiousness runs throughout Scripture. From the beginning to the end, we see the theme of anxiety and God's people not knowing what's next. The word that is used here in Philippians for anxious, the, word, the Greek word that they translate into anxious actually carries the meaning of distressed. Why our English translators chose to use anxious, I I don't know for sure. Maybe it's just a word that they knew that we would understand better to help us put it in our minds right now. But I think as we start to think through the aspect of being distressed, it starts to frame it a little bit better for us. As I continue to just try to formulate a a biblical definition and an understanding uh, of what anxiety truly is, I came across a a message from author and Christian counselor, David Powlison. And he had just the best quote I could find on this idea from a biblical perspective. He says, the experience of worry and anxiety makes sense in a fallen world. The real miracle is that not everyone is in a continual panic attack and completely despairing. At this point, some of you are like, yeah. I sit over here and I just wonder, like, how is everyone not continually just in panic attack when we look at the fallen world around us, right? Is Iran going to bomb us? Are we going to bomb them? Are we on the cusp of World War III? The fact that we live on a giant spinning ball just a few thousand feet from freezing to death or burning alive, spinning through the universe, or even just the local news, right? You wake up and snowpocalypse and polar vortexes. And I don't even know what half of those words mean, but they just put anxiety into me. When I just watch the news, I'm going to walk outside and just freeze to death, right? Like that's, that's the world that we live in. And that's what Paulison is saying. Like just when we think about the fallen world around us, it's a miracle 
that we all don't just live in a constant state of panic. He goes on to say, without God and without hope, we should be despairing. As Christians, we are not immune to any of the pain, loss, heartache, and uncertainty of a fallen world. Without God, there is no hope for the pain and the loss and the heartache that this world has to offer us. So that's what we're going to try to dig down into today, trying to understand the hope that we can find, not just in this passage, but throughout God's word. I don't think it's surprising to any of us, this idea of being without pain and without suffering, and we're not immune to it, right? We all have gone through something, and we understand the pain that this world can bring to us. I said the Bible doesn't talk much about the word anxiety, but it does talk about just the idea of being distressed and worried throughout the pages. So I want to look at a couple of other passages that kind of talk about this idea of anxiety and just see what some of the other, and these are just two passages. There's dozens in scripture that can point us to these ideas of being anxious and how to work through them. I wanted to grab an Old Testament and a New Testament. So first up, Old Testament, 1 Kings 19.4. I'll have that behind. Feel free to read it as I just talk through it. In this passage, we can see Elijah, one of the prophets of God, at one of his lowest points in life. He is literally asking God to let him die. God, let me die. They're his words. He's just stressed and worried to a point that he just starts to get to a point of hopelessness and just doesn't know what's next. And the amazing thing about this passage is that it comes immediately after Elijah does one of the most incredible things in his life for sure, but maybe even in all of the Bible outside of Jesus's work. See, Elijah was right before this, he's standing on a mountain face to face with Hundreds, dozens of prophets of Baal, the false god of, of the Canaanites. And he's going back and forth with them, trying to determine whose god is better. And he's criticizing them and mocking them, just this pillar of a godly man, just standing strong for what God represents. And they're trying to do stuff, and he's mocking them. And finally, he prays and he calls down fire from heaven on these false prophets. It's incredible. I don't know about you, but God's never used me in quite that of incredible of a way, right? And so for him to have such this mountaintop experience, and immediately after, the Queen Jezebel says, we need to kill him, and he has to go run and hide, and he's hiding in a cave. So he goes from this mountaintop experience with God to just a few days later hiding in a cave, saying, God, let me die. He shows us that our feelings can come and go, right? And again, that's something that you understand and you realize, right? The, the ebbs and flows of life, how we can be high highs and low lows, sometimes within days, within moments. The Bible talks about this. It gives hope to that. It says, yes. And, and I don't have up here and don't, what, what you continue to read in this passage is that God speaks to him. Even in that lowest point, he whispers hope to him. What about the New Testament? Well, we're in that right now, right? And Paul is the author of Philippians. And we know in our passage today that he is commanding us not to be an anxious. It, he's, it is a command. Do not be anxious about anything. But let's look at another letter that Paul wrote. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11. I have verses 25 through 28. Again, up here, you can read through it as I talk about it. At the beginning of it, we see this laundry list of everything that Paul has gone through in his life. Now, this isn't like, I went through all of this heartache and pain and then became a Christian and my whole life was wonderful and great, right? No. This is the laundry list of what happened to Paul after he became a believer. And then at the end of it, Paul says, I'm anxious for the churches. But Paul, maybe you should take your own advice, right? You, you, just say, you say in Philippians, don't be anxious about anything. But now here you are in Corinthians saying you are anxious. So how does that work? Where does that go, Paul? Well, maybe it's a different word, right? Like we, we've talked before at times about Greek words meaning different things. And we use one English word to represent many Greek words at times. And so maybe it's a different Greek word here. It's got a different meaning here. No. The Greek word in 2 Corinthians for anxious is the same exact word that is used in Philippians 4. Paul is unashamedly admitting that he worries, and he's afraid, and he is anxious. He's anxious thinking about what could happen to these churches that he's planted and that he loves and he poured so much time and energy into and leaders that he's equipped and put in power and put in leading the church. And then he went away and he's just anxious thinking back because he's heard what's going on. He's heard about the sin that's going on in the churches. He's heard about the false leaders that are rising up and false teachers teaching heretical things to the churches. And he's saying, I'm anxious because I just, I don't know what for sure is going to happen to these churches that I planted. Yet we can see back in the Philippians passage the answer to Paul's anxiety. Verse 5, after, or before, even he says, do not be anxious. He says, let your reasonableness be known. And he says, the Lord is at hand. Even in the midst of the fear that Paul had for his churches, he knew that God was at hand. And he knew that he needed to be focused on the truths, his reasonableness be known, the truth of Scripture. This shows us that there are times where we will be afraid, we will be nervous, we will be worried, we will be anxious. These are emotional experiences similar to anger. I'm not saying it's the same as, I'm saying that they're similar in the fact they're both emotional experiences. And just like anger, the real issue is not when the thoughts come into our head. It's not stopping the thoughts from coming into our head. It's what we do with those thoughts after. Do we let those thoughts spiral in us and just spiral down into something negative? What do we do with those thoughts? Well, what does this passage actually teach us about anxiety? I believe Philippians chapter 4 4 through 7 teaches us two things about God. One, it teaches us, or two, the two things is anxiety can either nudge us towards God or it can nudge us away from God. And that is really the heart and the hope of this passage. When those feelings of worry and distress or anxiety come in, we have the choice what we are going to do with those thoughts and those feelings and those emotions. This command is not meant to make us feel bad when we're worried. It's meant to give us hope. Hope knowing that God is near. So first, anxiety can nudge us away from God. Anxiety can become a sin factory. 
it can cause us to just spiral. Two, uh, two things with this idea of being a sin factory. We, anxiety can make us spiral in the idea of what, you know, when we think about what similar things that we may be anxious about or topics that we may be anxious about. One, we may be anxious about finances, right? Like, how am I going to pay the bills? And I just don't know. And it just never seems like there's enough money at the end of the month. And, and how am I going to do this? And what's going to happen next? And we, when we get anxious about that and we worry about it, and we start to spiral, it can create sinful things inside of us. It can, can create greed. It can create hoarding. It can cause us to make poor ethical choices in our businesses or just even in our personal life. And it can even get to a point that we start to maybe even start to steal things. It can cause us to spiral to these sinful acts. What about if we're anxious about approval? What people think about us? We can start to hide who we truly are. Like, I don't want people to know the real me because if they knew the real me, they wouldn't like me. It can start, start to make us embellish stories. Like if I just, if I just lie a little bit, just make, make the story sound a little bit better than what it really was, people will like me better. It can even cause us to start gossiping on others. Because if I gossip about others, then I can get these people on my side and then, then they'll be more focused on them and they'll like me because I'm over here gossiping with them about these people and I don't really care about them. I just worry about myself and I'm anxious about people liking me. Really what we're doing is just searching for control. We are constantly searching for control in our lives. What we wear, what we eat, where we go, where we live, where, what school our children go to, what, if they follow Jesus or not, what happens in my wife and my marriage and finances. And we're constantly trying to control everything in our lives. And we need to realize we are not in control we have choices that God lets us make in our lives that we are not in control. We have to realize and submit to the fact that there is a higher power guiding, leading, and directing our lives. There's a beautiful passage in the Gospel of Matthew that points us to this idea of not being in control and God's care for us. But I'm going to make you come back next week and hear about that because Matt's going to talk about that next week when we kind of continue this series of like controlling our thoughts. Today we're looking at controlling specifically anxiety, but we're going to zone out next week and look at this whole idea of controlling our thoughts and our thought life. And we're going to look at that passage in Matthew. So I'm going to let Matt cover that next week, but just know that we are not in control of our lives. Anxiety can diminish who God is. It can tell us that God is too busy, he's too uncaring, and he's too unloving. He's got too much going on in this world. He's got to care for everything. He doesn't have time to worry about little old Joey Weber in Boone, Iowa. And I don't know if he even really cares at times, right? Like, maybe he just started all this going. It's not like he's sitting here with me talking to me and telling me that he cares like my wife does. I read scripture, but I just don't know if God's here. Maybe he's just far off. He started this whole process going, and he's just watching now. And does he even really love me? How could he love me because of the things that I've done? If I, I couldn't love me knowing the things that I've done, so how could God love me knowing the things that I've done? We tell ourselves that God is too busy, too uncaring, and too unloving when we start to dwell on our anxious thoughts. One line in this passage points to the do not. Everything else is pointing us to how much God loves us and cares for us. 
So worry and distress can nudge us away from God, or it can start to nudge us towards God. Verse 4 and 5 give us the preface of this nudging. He says, rejoice. Rejoice again. I say rejoice. Paul writes that after many of those things that I talked about, that list in 2 Corinthians, he writes this, that idea of rejoice, rejoice again. After many of those things has happened to him, he's writing it. We've talked about while sitting in prison, he's saying rejoice. Again, rejoice. How can he say that? Well, he continues in verse 5. Let your reasonableness known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That's how he can rejoice because he knows God is at hand. He is here. He is with you. He has not left you on an island to stress and worry about everything to the point of depression. God is with you and he loves you. The more accurate and intimate our knowledge of God is, the better we are able to wrestle our anxieties to the ground. And that's what Paul is doing. Yes, he's anxious for what may happen in the churches. He can sit there while in prison or in Rome or while he's away from them and be worried about it. But in the end, he knows that God is good and God is at hand and God is with all of those churches. He's with Paul in the midst of his imprisonment. And so Paul can say, God is here and I know he's in control and I know he loves me. He leans into God and he runs to him with his request. We need to dwell on the truth, the truth of Scripture, and not the lies, the lies that our mind wants to tell us, because that's what most of our worries are. There are lies from the pit of hell. Now, I get it. I really do. Although I, I may not have, I don't think I've ever had like a, a panic attack and, and I really don't feel like I've ever slipped into depression. I, I have been anxious at points, but I get this idea of spiraling. I've had two doctors tell me that they believe I have obsessive compulsive disorder and that I should get tested. But in order to get tested, I had to drive all the way to Des Moines or maybe even further. And the test was really long. And who knew if insurance was going to cover it all? So it just seemed like a lot of work. So uh, the doctor thinks I do. So that's good enough, right? And we just learn to just deal with it, sort of. And I went to a counselor for a while. That was at least part of it. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do the test. But at least I'll go to a counselor and talk about this obsessive compulsive disorder. And we talked about the idea of cognitive behavior therapy. That's really what I'm talking about from this passage when we talk about this idea of dwelling on truth. Cognitive behavior therapy has the goal of changing patterns of thinking and our behavior, the, the behavior that's behind our struggles, so that we can change the way we feel and react in certain situations. One of my compulsions comes out in dishes. I obsessively rinse dishes. To the point that if Andrea needs something from out of the dishwasher that has not been ran yet, like it's, it's rinsed and it's loaded, just hasn't been ran, she is confident knowing she can pull it out and it is clean enough. Not for me, but for her it is. And it, it bothers me at times. And this is just full confession of where I can spiral into. Because you see, 
when I watch her do the dishes, it, it starts to cause me to spiral. Because you see, I've instructed her on how the dishes should be rinsed. And I've instructed her on how the dishwasher should be loaded. And the rinsing, especially things that have touched raw chicken. Because, oh my, I have an un, unrealistic and unhealthy fear of salmonella poisoning. That's just, I, I, it's just me and it's just something I'm trying to work through. But so... When I've instructed her how she's supposed to do it and she doesn't listen, I start to spiral. When I see her just take that pan and just splash some water and run the dish wand over it and rinse it back off and we're good, my thoughts just start to spiral. And I start to tell my mind, in my mind I start to think terrible things. I think, why doesn't she listen to me? I've told her what she needs to do. Doesn't she care if we all get sick? Why does she disrespect me? It's because she doesn't love me that she doesn't listen to me. And on and on I spiral until I eventually blow up or just say something sarcastic to her. Men, I'll give you a little bonus. uh, Bonus advice right now. Um, Marriage advice. Uh, Criticizing your wife's dishwashing abilities is not probably the best thing for your marriage and choice of life. Um, so that's just a little bonus for today. Um, I talked through this with my counselor, and that's when we started talking about this idea of cognitive behavior therapy and retraining my mind. When I start to have these unrealistic thoughts, I need to focus on the truth and not the lies that my mind wants to tell. I need to remind myself, no, it has nothing to do with the fact that she's disrespecting me or she doesn't love me. Yes, she loves me and she cares about me. It's just not as important for her as it is for me. And that's, these are lies, not the truth. But it's a practice and a habit. The same is true for all of us when we start to have those anxious thoughts that can nudge us away from God. We must dwell on the truth of Scripture, the truth found right here in these passages, that the Lord is at hand. This is why the Bible talks about storing God's Word in our heart. God knows that the lies will flood in. We will watch the news. We will walk out into this world. We will see the fallen world around us, and the lies will start to flood into our mind. And because of that, we need to have God's Word stored in our hearts so that we can battle those lies with the truth meditate on those when God, when the lies start to come in. Now that's all great and wonderful and super helpful, right? And you're all better and we can go, right? In verses 6 and 7, we can see the help and the hope that we can find. Besides just the idea of rejoicing that God is near, there's, there's even more here that can help us. And before we really dig into that, uh, I, I want to ask a question. To those of you who are ministering to someone that has anxiety, or living and loving, living with and loving someone who struggles with anxiety, I want to ask you, what is your ultimate goal? Are you just trying to cure them? Help them to be undepressed and unanxious? Is that the ultimate goal? To get rid of their anxiety completely? If that's our goal, we're missing the mark. We have to help them to have hope in God in the midst of their struggles. I am not trying to fix you. I will not fix you. It is not my job to fix you. My job, our job as those ministering to and loving those struggling is to root them in Christ and to let them know that we are here and we are with them. We are together in this. 
we at Stonebridge understand that everyone who walks in these doors has different life experiences, different past struggles, different neurological issues. We know that the path to getting to this point today has been different for every single person. And so with that, we know that those that are struggling with distressing thoughts, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of, here's how to be fixed and you're all better. No, that's not what's going to happen. But to those of you who are struggling with those distressing thoughts, I have three words for you to remember. Three words I want you to write down. I want you to meditate on them. They're from this passage, and we can just focus on them. Those three words are prayer, praise, and promise. Pray, praise, and promise. Just repeat those and dwell on these. Pray, praise, and promise. Now, this is not just this is not a strategy. We cannot just look at this passage as a quick fix. It's the cognitive behavior, the retraining of our minds to focus on this, to focus on pray, praise, promise, instead of what could happen if. Retraining our mind to focus on the truth of this passage in God's word. So first up, pray. When those thoughts and those feelings come in, we need to run to God with our prayers. He is a God who is with us and wants to hear from us, to be in communication with us. He, he desires us to be constantly in a communication. And I'm not just saying when you wake up in the morning, that one prayer, like, God, help me to not be so anxious today. And then you move through your day. I'm saying every single time you have those thoughts, And I know you've lived with and been near people that say things like I did in the beginning to Andrea. And you start to feel like, well, I just can't talk about it. God is not like that. It doesn't matter if it's 300 times a day that you are coming to God and saying, God, hear me. Be with me. I'm struggling and just bringing those requests. It is never too much for God. Praise. We can see that. Again, I'm going to read through these passages. I meant to do that before I got into it. But starting at verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. With thanksgiving. That's the praise that we see in this passage. That's why we stand here. And we sing. But it doesn't have to just be on Sunday morning. It's any day, any time. I loved the songs today. Thank you, Josh, for, for that. It was so good. I literally just told him a couple of weeks ago, like, yep, we're going to be talking about anxiety and moved on. And he just grabs these songs. And there's so many other songs that are filled with God's truth that he is with us and that we are no longer slaves to fear, to anxiety, to addiction, to stress, to depression. We are no longer slaves to those feelings. We are children of God and praise God for that. But not just for that, but for the fact that he is in control of everything. We walk outside, and as much as I don't like this weather, it shows God's majesty and power. And we can praise him for that. And promise. That last section there. A peace that surpasses all understanding. It will guard your heart. It's not saying it might. It's not saying if you then. No. It will guard your heart. And I know, as I say, pray, praise, promise. Some of you may be sitting here saying like, I've tried that. I've tried to pray. I've tried to listen to worship music. I've tried to remember God's promises and it just doesn't help. So this isn't going to help me either. 
And I understand in our humanness, we can sit here and we can feel hopeless and we can think, yeah, it's just not going to help. But this passage promises us that there is a peace that surpasses all understanding. God's peace surpasses anything you could possibly understand in your life. Quit looking at your struggles from just your own humanness and know that God's peace surpasses all of it. We need to learn to speak to ourselves and to quit listening to ourselves. And I know that may not make sense to some of you, but what I mean is when we get in those modes of worry and distress, we tend to listen to the lies that our mind tells us and the lies that this world tells us. We need to learn to speak the truth of God's promises. The promises from the very beginning of this book to the very end, the promises that he would send his son to redeem all of us, to be the forgiveness for our sins, that he would make a way for all of us to be forgiven. He promised that thousands of years ago. And he came true on that promise. He sent his perfect son to die for us. And there are so many other promises all the way to the end that he promises he will come back and he will be with us and he will usher us into an eternity that is free of all anxiety and worry and distress and and sickness and pain. Dwell on the promises of God. And it all hinges on our awakening to the fact that we are not alone. Anxiety and depression are very lonely experiences. If we aren't alone, it changes everything. Dwell on these verses. Dwell on this fact. Let your reasonableness be made known to God. The Lord is at hand. God is near. He is present. And his grace reaches into the depths of those struggles. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus is not someone who can't sympathize with our weakness. That he was tempted in every respect, as we are, yet he didn't sin. Or you may say, he was tempted in every way, like this, like I'm currently dealing with. He was tempted in this way. Yes, on the night of his crucifixion, Jesus sat in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed fervently to his daddy. And he said things like, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. Jesus was distressed to the point of sweating drops of blood. The prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah says that he would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Yet he also in the garden said... Not my will, but yours, Dad. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the pain that was going to be inflicted on him. He knew the separation that he was going to feel from God. He knew the full wrath of God that was about to be poured out on him. He is in this level of distress while talking to God. It doesn't mean he wasn't worried. He was worried. He was nervous about the pain that he was going to feel. But he also was connected with God. And he had faith knowing that God was in control and that this was the plan that had to happen. He knew the plan. It doesn't mean he wasn't worried. He just was trusting in God's plan. That should bring us hope and simultaneously show you that your emotions are real. Your emotions are real. The fears that you have, the anxieties that you have, they are real. But the hope that God is with you and that he recognizes that and he went through it for you. That gives us hope. Dwell on the promises of God in a fallen world. 
And we're just supposed to live in joy, right? Many of you have been coming here for however many weeks as we've been working through Philippians and you've been staring at this screen behind me that says, choose joy. And it just sounds so simple, doesn't it? Just choose joy. All Adam and Eve knew was perfection. And yet through sin, they sat there in front of the face of God and had to reconcile that their lives would be to harvest from hard ground and pain through childbirth. They couldn't process that. They didn't understand the words that were being said to them. They were cast out of perfection because of their sin and forced to face a life filled with anxiousness. And that brings us to Philippians now thousands of years later. And we are forced to come face to face with choose joy. And it's hard to know what joy looks like when you are walking through hard ground and painful childbirth. Experiences that you can't even process. Experiences like raising a child with disabilities or broken marriages or finances that just don't seem to make sense or whatever the struggle is that you are anxious about. They don't seem to make sense. Because of sin, we welcome this anxiety. And we have to deal with it and work through it. And yet because of the cross, we are promised a heaven that does not include such pains We have to learn to address anxiety in 2020 if we ever appreciate, ever hope to appreciate the lack of anxiety in eternity. Pray, praise, promise. Let anxiety nudge you towards God and the fact that he loves you, he cares about you, and that he is with you every moment of every day, everywhere you go. God is near and he is at hand. Let's pray. Father God, I praise you for how great and perfect you are. It's so easy to just read this passage. For some of us, it's so easy to just read this passage and say, okay, yep, don't be anxious. I get it, God. Thank you. For many of us, we sit here and we say, that seems so easy. But God, you don't just give us a command and leave us on an island. God, you give us hope and a promise that you are with us, you are near. So God, I pray when these feelings come into our church's minds, when they, when they start to dwell on these things and start to have control over what they can't, that they can run to you and pray, that they can praise you through the storm, they can praise you in the highs and the lows, on the mountaintops and the valleys, and that they can remember the promises of your word.